almost 20% of all pregnancies end in abortion. In the name of justice, modern identity politics has actually increased injustice, celebrating racism and bigotry, doing harm to others is often encouraged in the name of equity and fairness. And some are even doing this in the name of Christ. In America, Christianity is on the decline. Laws are being pushed forward to make it illegal for Christians to live and act on their Christian convictions. False doctrines are perpetuating throughout the American evangelical church, and in some cases, denominations are splitting over these differences that are happening as a group wants to move away from what Scripture says is true and a different group wants to hold fast to that. In other cases, there are ears of deceived followers that are being tickled and they're, they're, they're buying into it as folks lead them like sheep to the slaughter. Sins like gossip and slander and lust are increasingly being celebrated and not just celebrated but monetized. You can now make money easier off of these things. Greedy people seem to get away with their greed and live the good life without any consequence at all, it seems. Quite frankly, it seems like evil is winning. It seems like God is letting these wicked actions go unpunished. And it seems like we have more reason to despair than to hope. Now by now you may be saying, thanks a lot for that, Christopher. I come to our worship gatherings to feel better, not worse. <laughs> well, as we continue our series in Psalms this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 37. And we're going to see Scripture address this question head on. What do we do? What do we do when it seems like evil is winning? When it seems like evil is prospering, what do we do? What does God have to say to his people about what to do in this situation? That, that, the answer to that question was relevant during the time of David late in his life when he wrote this psalm, and it is just as relevant today. And here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that when evil seems to prosper, we must remember to look ahead, to look up, and be constructive. When evil seems to prosper, we must remember to look ahead, look up, and be constructive. Now, I'm going to be bouncing throughout this psalm today. So what I want to do up front is read all 40 verses of this psalm up front so we can see the big picture of it before we dive in. And these 40 verses are God's inspired, infallible words to his people. So please discipline yourself through this long reading to stay focused on it. The most important thing that's going to be said today is about ready to be read out of God's word. Try not to let your mind wander and focus on these 40 verses, either in your Bible that you have open or uh, that will be on the screen to follow as well. All right, here we go. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He's ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord. And keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when you see the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Wow, there is so much in there. And I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you we're gonna get to all of it today. But we're gonna hit the main thing. So let's get right into our first point. Number one. When evil seems to prosper, we must look ahead. When evil seems to prosper, we must look ahead. Psalm 37 falls into the category of wisdom psalms. We've been walking through the genres of psalms. Today is wisdom psalms. Psalm 1 
that Mike started this series with was a wisdom psalm. And one of the primary characteristics of wisdom psalms is this comparison between the righteous man and the unrighteous man. This compare and contrast is central in wisdom psalms where you compare the righteous with the wicked. And I'm sure you noticed as we just read through Psalm 37 together, Psalm 37 is chock full of distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 37 is also poetry. Well, why is that important? Because understanding the genre of the Bible text you're reading is so critical to properly understanding it. For example, poetry is different than narrative. Narrative tends to be factual and linear, leading us from A to B to C, and then this happened, and then this person said this, and then finally this is what ended up happening. That's a narrative, telling a story linearly. Poetry, on the other hand, is not always linear, and it often includes imagery through metaphor and simile. We see a lot in here, a lot of plant and agricultural imagery in this psalm. In fact, Psalm 37 is also structured as an acrostic. Every other verse in the original language starts with the next letter of the alphabet. So it's like David is writing this psalm, working through the Hebrew ABs and Cs. And in addition, Psalm 37 has what is called a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure was very common in ancient literature. Um, Classics like the Iliad, Odyssey, um, Beowulf, all use a chiastic structure. And many religious texts do, and certainly many psalms utilize this structure. Now, in a chiastic structure... The main point is not necessarily stated at the beginning like the topic sentence of a paragraph, how we learn to write in school, state your topic and and flesh it out in the paragraph. It's also not like a discourse, like think of Romans where Paul is leading us chapters, chapters, and chapters, and chapters, and then he goes, and therefore, boom, there's the conclusion. That's how discourse often works. This is poetry, and and a chiastic structure doesn't work that way. In a chiastic structure, the main point is located in the center. Take a look at this slide. What you're going to see is A goes to B, and then B goes to C, and then you start to backtrack to B and you back to A, where C is the main point, the main emphasis of what the writer's trying to get at. This was often used in ancient literature because it helped orators remember things. They didn't have as much written word going around, and so they were able to remember and recount and backtack, backtrack through it, and it helped the listeners as well. Let me uh, show you an example of how you as a parent might use, maybe unwittingly, a simple chiastic structure to communicate to their child. Here on the screen you see an example. Don't run into the street. There are cars and trucks driving there. It's best for you to stay safe and not get hurt. You could get seriously hurt if a car runs into you, so stay out of the street. Does that make sense? See what's going on there? Psalm 37 does this, and its main emphasis is in verse 22, right in the middle. David is also helpful. This psalm, I just got so much appreciation studying this psalm of just the artfulness of it. There are so many different ways you could come at this psalm. I mean, it's acrostic, it's chiastic, it has stanzas. But David helpfully illustrates this main point multiple times. I'm sure you heard it repeating as we read through. 
Remember how it started. Psalm 37, 1 said, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Now, fret is a word that means to eat at or to gnaw into. Scripture tells us not to let the apparent success of evildoers eat at us. Don't be envious of them. And verse 22 is the center point of this main argument of the psalm. And here's what it says. It says, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. David is telling the people the primary reason, the primary reason to not fret about or envy evildoers is because in the end, those blessed by Yahweh are going to receive the promised inheritance. And the wicked are going to be cut off permanently. Scripture says when evildoers are gnawing at you and you are tempted to desire the success that they seem to be having, Scripture says, look ahead. Look ahead. Look at how the story is going to end. These evildoers will be cut off while those blessed by the Lord will inherit the land. Don't long to be like them is what the psalm tells us. This message is repeated over and over throughout the psalm. In fact, right after verse 1, we get an image of it right in verse 2, where it says to not fret, for they will soon fade. They, the evildoers, will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. When we see evil closing in around God's people, we must bring to remembrance what the one sovereign, true, and faithful God has said about how everything is going to work itself out, how everything's going to end. The blessed will inherit the land. The wicked will be cut off. Friends, this is covenant language. This is covenant promise language. We see through the Old Testament covenants the promise of a land, the promise of an inheritance. And this promise is ultimately fulfilled at the end of this age in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus even quotes verse 11 of Psalm 37 when he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus knows the end of the story. And Psalm 37 is not ambiguous at all concerning the outcomes of the righteous and wicked. So for the sake of time, let me summarize what Psalm 37 says about the outcomes of the wicked and the righteous. So here we go. First, the wicked. In verses 9, 22, 28, 34, and 38, it says the wicked will be cut off. In verses 2, 10, 20, and 36, it says they're going to fade or wither away. In verse 13, it says the wicked are going to be laughed at by the Lord because the Lord knows their day is coming. The Lord knows the end of the story. Verse 15 says that they're going to be struck down by their own sword and that their weapons are rendered useless. Verse 17 says their arms are broken. Remember, this is poetry. There's imagery here. The arm is what is executing things. Charles Spurgeon says this about that phrase. He says, their power to do mischief is gone. The power to do mischief is gone. In Psalm 37, God is saying, don't worry about them. And by all means, do not be envious of them. Their doom is certain and final. Don't desire to be like them. 
But for the righteous, here's what the psalm says. Verse 4, they're going to be given the desires of their heart. We're going to come back to that in our next point. Verse 6, their righteousness and justice will be brought to light. In verse 11, the righteous delight in abundant peace. In verses 11, 22, 27, 29, and 34, it says they will inherit the land. In verses 17 and 24, they are going to be upheld by the Lord. Verse 19, the righteous will not be put to shame. Verses 23 and 31, the righteous' steps will be established by the Lord. Verses 25 and 28, the righteous will not be forsaken. And in verse 26, the righteous will be a blessing to others. God says, look ahead. Remember how the story will end. You're playing the long game here. When evil seems to be winning, don't forget that evil's defeat is certain and it's imminent. The wicked lose, the righteous win. In 1952, some of you may have heard this story before, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim a 26-mile stretch from the California coast out to Catalina Island. And she started her swim, and she was about 15 hours into the swim, which is about 14 hours and 50 minutes after I would have drowned. Um, She's 15 hours into the swim, and this heavy, heavy fog sits in. And she can't see anything anymore. And she's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And her support team that was there was encouraging her to keep going. She swam for another hour, and she's finally like, I can't see anything. I, I, I can't do this anymore. And despite the urging of her team, she got back into the boat. When she got into the boat, she was able to see she was less than a mile away from Catalina Island. But she couldn't see that she was that close. <coughs> Seeing your destination is a powerful motivator to keep pressing on. God knows this. And in the midst of struggle and evil flourishing, he says, look ahead. Look at how the story ends and keep pressing on. But not only does he direct our gaze to look ahead, he instructs us also to look up. And that's point two. When evil seems to prosper, we must look up. God does not leave us on our own to merely endure until the end. Psalm 37 also directs our gaze to the very provision of the Lord, and it comes through the provision of himself to his people. Let's look at a couple of examples in this text. First, Psalm 37, 4, a very popular verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We're instructed to delight ourselves in the Lord. And that word delight literally means to find extreme satisfaction in. We are told to lift our eyes off of the circumstances, trust in the Lord, and find extreme satisfaction in the Lord himself. Not in the world finally looking the way we want it to look. Not in you getting what the evildoers have but being satisfied, extremely satisfied in the Lord himself. Now you might ask, um, but if I'm reading this, Christopher, doesn't verse four say that I get everything I want to? I mean, it does say God will give me the desires of my heart. So what's up with that? 
Well, we don't need to think too hard to conclude that this obviously does not mean that God's going to give us whatever we want. I mean, God is not going to grant my sinful desires to me, right? We, we can agree on that pretty easily. Still, this verse is often lifted out of the context that it's in and lifted out of the whole council of Scripture and turned into like a bumper sticker type of theology especially in circles that embrace a prosperity theology where our best life is supposed to be now, not in eternity with Christ. Don't miss this. When delighting in God simply becomes a means to me getting what I want, we are effectively expecting God to be our servant in our kingdom and not the other way around. Be very careful about taking promises like this and reading way more into them than what scripture actually tells us about these we might say if i delight myself in the lord i'm going to get a big house and if i delight myself in the lord i can have a brand new car and if i delight in the lord he's going to heal my blindness or my cancer but what if god doesn't want me to have a big house because he knows it's going to fuel my sinful tendency to be materialistic and fill it with stuff that I'm going to bow down and worship instead of him. What if God doesn't want me to have a new car because next month when it breaks down, it's going to set into course a chain of events that's going to result in gospel conversations being had where God brings someone, transfers them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. What if that? What if God doesn't heal my blindness because greater glory is brought to him as I suffer righteously through what scripture calls this brief and momentary affliction? What if? God is not our means to an end. He is the end. He is the end. He is the reward. He is the treasure. He is the only one who, as Psalm 107, 9 says, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God certainly does give good gifts to his children, the gift of salvation, provision in so many different ways. He's given us a community to be part of. We're part of his kingdom. But most significantly, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, hear this, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, He gives us Himself. He gives us Himself. The desires of our heart become more and more for Him. Knowledge of Him and relationship with the lover of our souls. James Boyce says this, he says, the reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God is that they do not know Him very well. And the reason they do not know Him well is that they do not spend time with Him. Psalm 37, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How can we expect to taste the fruit of relationship with God when we neglect to feast on his self-revelation to us in his word? Reminds me of a time when um, many, many years ago, after leading a Friday night worship and prayer time, um, we went with some friends to get some pizza. 
And as usual, we were some of the last to leave, so we were getting there, and they had already gotten their pizza, and I walked up, and I'm like, why would you ever do that to a pizza? They put bacon, green pepper, and pineapple on it. And I literally said, why would you do that to a pizza? And they said, have you ever tried it? And I said, no. And they're like, well, shut your mouth until you do. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. So that night, I tried some bacon, green pepper, pineapple pizza. And I am on Team Pineapple. I don't care who you are, I am on Team Pineapple. It was glorious in my mouth. I did not know that because I had not tasted it. But once I tasted it, I was able to see that it was good. When you open up God's Word and read it, you are looking up and feasting on Him. You are looking up into God's revelation of himself to know him more, and you will experience a satisfaction that ruins you for anything else. It's a taste that nothing else can compare to. Next in verse 7, we're told to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. He is what we are waiting on. He is what we are looking and longing for. Look up, is what the psalm says. In verse 23, it says, He is the one who establishes our steps. He causes us to stand firm and walk in His ways. And then verse 39 and 40 says this, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He's our salvation. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Do not be discouraged. Look up. Salvation is from the Lord. Take refuge in Him. He is our stronghold. He helps and delivers the righteous. You see, we cannot walk the righteous path on our own, though. It's not something that comes from our own strength. If we're really honest, we are the wicked. We're the wicked that will be cut off outside of salvation from the Lord, which he graciously is giving to those that will look to him for it. Romans 3 tells us that none of us are righteous. None are. All have fallen short. Look up to the cross and see the Savior who took the penalty for your sin. Look up to the resurrected Christ who conquered sin in the grave and shares his life with you. Look up to the ascended Savior who is ruling on the throne and resting there because the work has been completed. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Look up. Look up, soul. When you're tormented by evil, look up to the example of Christ himself. One example of this is described in 1 Peter 2. It should be on the screen, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. It's talking about our sufferings coming into this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. He wasn't wicked. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Don't be overwhelmed by your circumstances, but entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. Look up. Don't look to your own righteousness. Look to Christ's righteousness that was credited to you through repentance and faith in him. In the midst of evil, look up. Now, we've seen where David instructs the people of God to look ahead and to look up as, and part of this looking is to wait patiently for the Lord and for the assured outcome that's going to come. But our waiting is not complacent. It's not an inactive waiting that's going on here. We're called to be active and to do much in our waiting, which is going to bring us to our last point today. Point three, when evil seems to prosper, we must be constructive. In Psalm 37, I've counted four things that we are specifically told not to do and ten things that we are commended to do. Some of these we've already discussed, but let's go through these commands. We've got a little lightning round coming here, so hold on. We're going to contrast them with what we see the wicked doing once we get to the end of them. So first, what are we not to do? What are we not to do? On verses 1, 7, and 8, we're told to not fret. We've talked about that some. But in addition, verse 8 mentioned that fretting tends to lead only to evil. So another reason not to fret is it's going to turn you more and more into those that will be cut off. It tends only to evil. We're to not let the acts and status of evildoers gnaw at us because we're looking ahead and we're looking up. All right, number two, thing of what we're told to do. Verse eight says we're told to restrain from anger. And then also in verse eight's number three, we're told to forsake wrath. So we're supposed to restrain from anger and then three, forsake wrath. Now let's get really practical here. This is all about our response to evil. That's what's being talked about here. We do not fight evil with evil. This should inform how, or if at all, we engage, say, in social media debates. I mean, let's be honest. Is that really the best platform to be fully and accurately understood? Is it the best venue to handle nuance and to avoid gossip and slander? What about in the workplace? Statistics show that the vast majority of job applicants have lied somewhere on their resume. We don't lie on our resumes because everybody else seems to do, and we feel like we need to do that to get ahead. We don't tear down others so that we look better and get the promotion. We don't fight evil with evil. Again, we're told to forsake anger and wrath because evil will be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Number four, verse 27 says we're to turn away from evil. So that's kind of doing and not doing something. We're supposed to not do evil. We don't respond to evil with evil, we've said already. But when we turn away from evil, we're actually turning to something. We're not just not doing evil. We're turning to something, and that's going to bring us to these lists of commands we see in the psalm about what to do. 
So what are we to do? The first four of the Ten Commands that I've counted in here are all located in verse 3. Psalm 37, 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Now, in verses 3, and then it restates it again in 5, trust in the Lord. That's our first thing. Our trust is not in us finally getting our way. Our trust is not in the government to fix things for us. Our trust is not in our own strength, as we've talked about, and it's certainly not in our own righteousness. Our trust is in the Lord. He is the sovereign one, as Ephesians 1.11 says, working all things out to the counsel of his own will. We can trust the Lord. Number two, it's mentioned in verse three. It's also mentioned again in verse 27. I love how sometimes scripture can be a little cryptic at times, but then other times it can be really direct. Do good. It's hard to misunderstand that. Do good. We're commanded to do good. Verse 27 says we turn from evil and do good. And so what do we do when we see evil? What's your proclivity to do, your, your reaction, your reflex? Is it to do good? Sometimes my reflex, unfortunately, is to grumble and complain, which Philippians 1.14 says that when I grumble and complain, that actually obstructs me from being light to the world. Do we pray? Do we see if there's a way for us to affect change for good? Do we do good? All right, the third command we get is to dwell in the land there in verse 3. Quite simply, we are not of this world, but we are in it. Be light in the world. Look for opportunities for gospel conversations. Create opportunities to shine light into darkness and help others to look to Christ. Help others to look ahead and to look up. The fourth thing we see in verse 3, befriend faithfulness. Now, the New American Standard Bible actually translates this into cultivate faithfulness. Remember, we've had plant imagery throughout this psalm. The righteous are called to be cultivating faithfulness. Is this a category that you have? In the midst of evildoers around you, do you have a category to cultivate faithfulness? To be a person of integrity who does what they say they will do? Now, especially in the South, it seems like there are many who identify as Christians, who honor the Lord with their words, but their daily lives, well, let's just be honest, there is little, if any, distinction between what the daily life of some of those folks looks like compared to the daily life of the wicked or the non-believers in Christ. Let's be people who live as if we actually believe what we say. Let's be people that walk in a way that backs up our talk. That we don't praise God with our mouth and as the Bible condemns in a different section of Scripture and then condemn people with that same mouth. Let's be people who live like the gospel is true, like it has changed our lives, like, like we are being changed from glory to glory, as Scripture says, as we grow in the Lord and seek to mortify sin in our lives and embrace greater and greater righteousness by following after the Lord. All right, number five. 
In verse 4, it said, delight in the Lord. That's something we're called to do. When we not going to spend time on this. I just put it on here because I wanted you to have a complete list of the Ten Commands. All right, number six. In verse five, it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and, and he will act. There's the second trust I mentioned earlier. But commit your way to the Lord. And this command has an assurance with it. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and what? He will act. There's a promise there. He can be counted on to bless your path, and you can also be counted on to correct it when it's necessary. He will act, and they're both for our good and for his glory. All right, seven, eight, and nine are together. In verse seven, we see to be still and to wait patiently, and then in 34, we see wait patiently and keeping his way put together. So we're to be still, wait patiently, and keep his way. Again, these commands are accompanied with the assurance that comes in verse 34 that the Lord will preserve his people and they will see the wicked cut off. Look ahead. Justice will be served. All right, number 10. In verse 21, we had read, be generous and give. Be generous and give. Not only is it interesting that the Lord talks specifically about our goods and our money, it's contrasted in this verse with the way the wicked approach those things, where they borrow and try and get out of having to pay it back. They seek to not pay it back. How can I not fulfill what I agreed to do when I signed for this? That's what the wicked do. But the righteous, in contrast, are generous and they give. Notice how all these actions contrast with the wicked who are going to be cut off. Just very briefly, the wicked borrow and don't pay back. They carry out evil devices. They plot against the righteous. They lash out against the righteous, commit violence against them. They attack the poor and the needy. They slay the upright. Do you see the difference between the righteous man and the unrighteous man? Between the righteous and the wicked. That's the contrast that the psalm is trying to show us here. Psalm 37 exhorts us, don't be like the wicked. Be like the righteous. Don't be destructive. Be constructive. Build up. Robbie, can you come on up, please? See, Psalm 37 is this treasure of wisdom that is highly relevant, like all of God's word is for our current generation, and in the midst of evil and wickedness flourishing and seeming to win, we're wisely instructed to look ahead, recall how the story will end because of God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness. We do not need to fret or worry about how things are going to end. On that last day, righteousness will prevail. Justice will finally and fully be realized. The Lord's enemies will be destroyed and brought to account. The salvation of the Lord will be culminated for all those who take refuge in him. That's what we have to look forward to. And then look up. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord by seeking him in his word and in prayer. Turn away from evil. Turn away from seeking to find satisfaction in things other than Christ himself. Make your ultimate hopes and your dreams be for eternity 
when we are with him forever in his presence, inheriting the new heavens and the new earth, being with him. And lastly, be constructive. We're Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Befriend faithfulness. Cultivate it. Work at farming faithfulness so that it, it, it grows. Forsake wrath, anger, and other evil deeds. Be generous and give lavishly because Christ has lavishly given to us. And don't be destructive like the wicked. Be constructive. Build up those around you. Speak out for righteousness. Be light in darkness and do not fight evil with evil, but do good. Let's close our time out today by once again reorienting our focus to look up and to look ahead for that time when we will finally see our Lord face to face. Go ahead and stand, please.